Piper D is going to come and read scripture for us. If you would stand uh, in honor of God's word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Good morning. Please listen as I read. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that, our, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, okay, we're in a series uh, called The Gospel Changes Everything, and uh, over these few weeks, it's just like an eight-week series, uh, we're taking a, a, a different subject and trying to hold it up uh, to the light of the gospel and ask how the gospel speaks uh, into that subject. And uh, today, our subject is, is sexuality. Um, right along, you know, last Sunday was money, and uh, you could say right along with, with money and the subject of power, uh, would be the subject of, of sex. Uh, s- some authors have made the case that these are kind of like a Christian trifecta, that money, sex, and power have been three uh, subjects that the church at various times, you know, various, one of those uh, things have gotten more attention than the other, but they've kind of functioned as, as this uh, Christian trifecta, this recognition uh, that, that where Christianity has seen the potential power, the potential benefit of those things, but also has seen the, the significant danger of, of those three things. That money, sex, and power all whisper uh, various uh, promises uh, to us. And the distortion of those good gifts from God um, can, can be quite problematic. And, uh, and I think we can all uh, identify, uh, even, even in our current moment, but definitely if we look back through the, the history uh, over the last couple thousand years of the church, uh, we can see how these three things have, have been uh, a, 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 uh, an ongoing conversation, an ongoing point of challenge, actually, uh, for, for the church. I, I want to say, before I get into the text here, um, that I recognize this is a super sensitive subject, um, that in our culture, uh, there is a lot of hurt, uh, there is a lot of regret uh, regarding sexuality uh, for, for a lot of us. And uh, so I, I, I just, I guess I want to state out loud uh, with you, you know, my heart here is uh, to, to, to enter into this subject with, with kindness, uh, with a recognition that our stories are complicated and, um, and that, again, hurt or regret or maybe both uh, of those could very well be uh, in, in, in your story. And so my, my prayer is that as we consider what God has to say about this, uh, that your heart is actually uh, uh, convicted if need be, but, but warmed and encouraged uh, and, and drawn, uh, drawn closer to Christ. So first, 
the situation in Corinth. Uh, the text you just heard from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it might be a really good idea, as it is every week, to have your Bible out. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you there. Uh, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, is a text that's part of a letter. And uh, this is a, a church, uh, it, it, the letter was written to this church, and they're, they're situated in a, a city called Corinth. And Paul wrote this, uh, this letter, uh, and he's, he's trying to invite the, the church into a, uh, a consideration. He, he wants to, to, in, uh, to bring about some corrections to the church at, at Corinth, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But what's going on in Corinth? So, so this, this church is located in this city, and Corinth was a wealthy Roman city. Uh, the, the excavation has revealed that it was built on like a Roman, like typical Roman grid. Uh, it was a wealthy city. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, like a lot of Roman cities, it was a mix of Greek and Roman culture. So maybe you're familiar with the phrase Greco-Roman. Well, well Greco-Roman is recognizing that Greek and Roman cultures uh, really blended in some significant ways. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of uh, just the history of the world, you know, Alexander the Great just conquered a huge part of, of the known world. And, um, and when he did that, uh, a major priority of his was to spread Greek culture. Uh, it's called Hellenization. And, uh, and so as, as, uh, as Alexander conquered these areas, he brought Greek culture with him. And that had impact on a uh, big impact on, on education, but also just on, on the way that people viewed the world. And so as Alexander the Great spread out all around the Mediterranean and beyond, uh, what went with him was this infusion of, of Greek culture. Well, then Rome comes after Greece, and uh, so much of that Greek culture stuck. It stuck uh, in, 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 in the uh, surrounding nations. It also stuck in the nation, uh, uh, the Jewish nation. Uh, and so the Hellenized uh, Jews was, was uh, is something that's a significant uh, factor in the years uh, of the New Testament, in the life of, of Jesus. Um, and so this Greek culture, Hellenization, has happened all through the region. Now Rome is the power, but Greek culture is, is prevalent. And so you end up with this idea of Greco-Roman uh, culture, Greco-Roman influence. Um, and the Greeks and the Romans, uh, their sexual ethics... Uh, like, they're pretty loose. Uh, if you uh, were to get out the, the, a Greek New Testament and you were to look at the text that we just had read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, what you see there is uh, that Paul uses the word pornea. He uses it in chapter 5 as well. And the Greek word for pornea, it's used multiple times in this passage. It, he, Paul uses it in two ways, the same root word. It, he uses it to refer to prostitution or prostitutes specifically, but then he also uses it to refer to sexual immorality. And so you see the phrase sexual immorality show up multiple times in this passage. That's the same, same Greek root word. Uh, and this, this, this word pornea, it, it does mean prostitute, but especially in the Hellenized Jew, Jewish culture, uh, pornea referenced uh, just, in a sense, general and any sense of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. And so it's it kind of almost like a catch It became like a catch-all term. It's like a general term referring to uh, any sex outside of heterosexual marriage, any sexual activity. Uh, and Paul's point here is that pornea is running rampant in Corinth. Uh, and partly because both Greek and Roman cultures had a really loose, really casual view of, of sex. 
Uh, and if you think I'm overstating it, or this is just some Christian attempt to like, make our points, uh, there, I have a quote here for you. I'll read a longer part of this. Um, but this is from a, a highly respected Greek statesman uh, and orator. Uh, from the, uh, he wrote this in, in the 4th century. And this is the quote, uh, Demosthenes. Uh, this is what he says. Uh, and there's the, the second half of this shows up in the notes here. Uh, For this is what living with a woman as one's wife means, to have children by her, and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and to the demi, or the community, and to betroth the daughters to husbands as one's own. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. And this is not a standalone quote. It's, it's a striking one. It's not a standalone quote. This was the general idea uh, that you have a wife, but the wife is to make sure that you have children that carry on your line that are legitimate and to take care of the household. You know, who's going to raise those kids? Who's going to make me dinner? And so that, that, that was the general view in the Greco-Roman world. It was also the general view that mistresses and concubines were completely uh, an acceptable uh, practice for the husband. And again, maybe you think that, well, this is still just, you know, you're putting a twist on this. Um, I, I, there's a lot of history, historians we could point to here, but historians point to a dramatic double standard for husbands and wives and so this quote from, from, from this guy, it's like, this is how the husbands think about things. But were the wives allowed to do this? Oh, no, no, no. A wife needed to be faithful uh, and, and, and committed to her husband. Uh, historians recognize that sex was, especially in the Greco-Roman culture, was seen simply as an appetite. It's an appetite to be fulfilled. Uh, Dr. Kyle Harper, uh, he's a Roman historian at, at, at Oklahoma University, Uh, He explains that sexual morality in the Roman Empire was permissive, it was based on social status, and sexual desire could be fulfilled in a myriad of ways. And so especially for a man, the options were just, you you could basically do uh, almost anything you wanted to do. Uh, Earlier this year, I read a book uh, titled Dominion. Uh, written by a, an agnostic historian named Tom Holland. And it is a beast of a book. It's, it's over 550 pages. Uh, it is, it's pretty majestic in its effort uh, to, to, uh, to, to identify or to trace what it's trying to trace. And basically, Tom Holland, who is an agnostic historian, is looking back at history and saying, I'm actually going to show you how Christianity changed the world. And Tom Holland's saying, and I don't even believe it. But it's undeniable that Christianity changed the world. And he says that in the Greek and Roman cultures, there was, this is, this is a quote, a sexual order rooted in the assumption that any man in a position of power had the right to exploit his inferiors, to use the orifices of a slave or a prostitute to relieve his sexual needs as much as, as, much as he might use a urinal. In ancient Rome... Uh, the idea of rape was, it, 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 was, it, was a, it was terribly convoluted. The focal point was the status of the one who had been violated. So the first question was, well, what, what, where do they stand in society? Where, where, where are they at in society? And is this acceptable behavior? And if the answer was they were not in one of these protected classes, 
well, then it was fair game. And so this is, the, this is the culture, this is the situation that Paul is writing to this church in. And historians agree that sex was loose in the dominant culture in Corinth in the first century. Now, second, the problem. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know that what, what I just said and some of the quotes I just read are pretty stark. Um, but the reason why I think it's important that we say this is because Paul wrote this letter to a church that had a lot of problems. Read, read the, the letters from 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Read, read the two letters that we have that Paul wrote to them. They got a ton of problems. But sex was one of those problems. And Paul is writing to address their behavior because the church in Corinth was determining how they lived based on their surrounding culture rather than God's design. So if you were to back up into chapter 5, Here's what you would see. In chapter 5, Paul rebukes the church at Corinth because they are living worse than the pagans. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says that, that, that you, have a, uh, you have someone who's, who's sleeping with his father's wife. It's in the category of incest. And Paul says, you're scandalizing the pagans. You, you, you're, you're living worse than the culture around you. The stuff you're doing, the culture around you thinks is off-limits. And you're doing it and you're not addressing it in your own congregation. So Paul says, you got a problem because you're living worse than the pagans. Then you get to chapter 6 and Paul says this, second half of chapter 6. Paul now rebukes them because they're living exactly like the pagans. So in chapter 5 he says, what's going on in your church family is worse than what's going on out there. That's a problem. But then in chapter 6 he says, you know what else is a problem? What's going on in your congregation is exactly like the way they live out there. It's exactly the way this broader culture is treating this, this, this subject of, of sex. Pornia was rampant in Corinth, and pornea was rampant in the church too. And so Paul says, yeah, you're living worse than them, but you're also living like them. Neither of these options make any sense for the follower of Jesus. And in case you're, you're, you're maybe trying to clarify, what does Paul mean by the word pagan in chapter 5, verse 1? What does he mean you live worse than the pagans or live exactly like the pagans? He, when he uses the word pagan, he means people who are not followers of Jesus. In other words, the vast majority of this church's neighbors who lived in line with the accept, accepted practices of the Greco-Roman culture. So when Paul uses pagan, he's not trying to be derogatory. He's just saying the way you're living is worse than people who don't claim to follow Jesus. And then in these other ways, the way you're living is exactly like the people who do not claim to follow Jesus. How can this be? That's Paul's point. How can this be? How can you be engaged in these kinds of practices? Well, listen, brothers and sisters, does that sound familiar? It's not that different in the, in, in the 21st century. What our current culture allows or does not allow often determines what we think God allows or does not allow. In other words, unfortunately, there, there's evidence here that peer pressure, cultural peer pressure, or the lack of cultural peer pressure forms our beliefs and our behaviors. And so as the culture goes, so goes the church. So, so go the people in the church. This, this is Paul's point. Paul says, you're claiming to be followers of Jesus, and yet look at yourselves. There, there's, not, there's not a distinction here, and there should be. 
This is so true in regard to sexuality, and it's true in our moment. Um, last night, as I was going to bed, my wife says, hey, you want to check this out before you fall asleep? Pretty, pretty uh, specific headline for your sermon tomorrow. And it was uh, uh, an article on the Gospel Coalition that was referencing uh, some Pew research that had recently been released. And in this article that I saw last night, uh, Pew Research shows that 57% of Christians believe that it is always or sometimes acceptable for two consenting adults to have sex if they are in a committed relationship. 57% of Christians answered it is always or sometimes acceptable if you're in a committed relationship. Now, maybe you're here and you're saying, well, I, I actually, I, I agree with that, you know? They're, they're committed to each other. Okay, well, hold on a second. The same survey showed that 50% of Christians believe that it is always or sometimes acceptable for two consenting adults to have sex, even if they are not in a committed relationship. So somehow there's a 7% distinction there. 57% of people think it's okay if you're in a committed relationship, and then that 7% bails out, and you just have 50% that think it's okay if you're not in a committed relationship. Uh, Pew Research also shows that 54% of Christians say that homosexuality should be supported. 44% of Christians uh, support or agree with the practice of gay marriage. We are more similar to the church in Corinth than we want to think that we are. Now look, these are, these are sensitive subjects, and we want to deal with them with kindness. We want to be kind to our neighbors and loving to our neighbors. And this term that Paul uses of, of pagan or a non-follower of Jesus, we want to have an incredible level of sensitivity and awareness of what they're actually committing themselves to. A non-follower of Jesus is, is clearly saying, I'm not living to that standard. So look at the end of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, so he wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians that we don't have, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So, so his point here is that he's not saying that we like, can't be friends with people who have sexual practices that are contrary to God's design. Why would you expect a non-follower of Jesus to, to have Jesus' standards? Paul's not surprised that, those, that, that, that those, those dynamics are at play. What Paul's bothered by is that it's happening with the followers of Jesus. That those people who say that they've committed to Jesus as Lord, those people who say that they care what the Bible has to say, that it's happening with them. Paul is not saying the world should be held responsible here. They don't say they follow Jesus. But if you say you follow Jesus, how do you land here? And brothers and sisters, a lot of us are apparently landing here. These numbers that I just read you, these percentages, I mean, these reflect Christians supporting the sexual practices that are far from God's design. They are in the category of pornea, sexual activity outside of the context of heterosexual marriage. And in case you're letting yourself off the hook, you know, Jesus taught us in the, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount that you've heard it say, don't, don't, don't commit you know, adultery. But I say, if you look upon someone with lust, you've committed adultery. So pornography, roaming eyes, 
gazing upon other people in lustful ways. This is all in the category that Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, it should not be, and yet it is. How can Christians live this way? This approach to sex is certainly not informed by the Bible. The Bible teaches something so radically different. And so I want to show you what Paul points them to, what Paul tries to to turn their attention to as he addresses this subject with them. He shows them that Christ changes everything. I want to read a little bit more from uh, Tom Holland's uh, book, Dominion. And again, Tom Holland is an agnostic. Um, But he he, he points here and he says, uh, I read part of this earlier. There's a uh, sexual order rooted in the assumption that any man in a position of power had the right to exploit his inferiors, to use the orifices of a slave or a prostitute to relieve his needs as much as he might use a urinal. That Christianity ended. Instead, as Paul had commanded, this is, this is, he's talking about the transition that happened. As Paul had commanded, every human body was sacred. Instincts taken for granted by the Romans had been recast as sin. Christianity had brought a revolution to the erotic in quite a spectacular way. The insistence of Scripture that a man and a woman, whenever they took the marital bed, were joined as Christ and his church were joined, were joined becoming one flesh, gave to, both, gave to both a rare dignity. If the wife was instructed to submit to her husband, then so equally was the husband instructed to be faithful to his wife. Here, by the standards of the age into which Christianity had been born, was an obligation that demanded an almost heroic degree of self-denial. Tom Holland goes on to say that in this new Christian view of sex and marriage, divorce was prohibited and couples could no longer be forced into marriage. This is Holland's conclusion. Never before had an attempt to recalibrate sexual morality been attempted on such a scale. Never before had anyone enjoyed such total success. As this agnostic historian looks in the rearview mirror, he says that what happened in the first century changed the world. And it changed the world so much that these sexual uh, uh, ethics became the standard for the actual empire that used to permit all of these things. He says never before had any sort of effort to recalibrate sexual morality been attempted and never had they seen such success. Why? Well, Paul points to it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. In verses 12 and 13, you'll notice that there's some quote marks. Now, the Greek language doesn't have quote marks. So this is translators trying to figure out what Paul's doing here. And the conclusion is that Paul is quoting the Corinthians. That that Paul is saying, okay, verse 12, here's what you all say. Here's what you're all out there saying. All of you out there are saying, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Who are you to judge me? Why, Why are you judging us? And Paul's point is, okay, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are good for you. See, Paul started this church. Paul preached the gospel, the scandalous gospel to this church. And one of the things that I'm sure Paul said to this church is, yes, Jesus really does scandalously forgive you. He really does. All the stuff that you've done, past, present, and future, Jesus really does forgive you. it It is a crazy scandal. Just go up a few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, look, I'm talking to a bunch of people who are guilty of all of these things. You've done these things, but you came to Christ and you were washed. You were sanctified. You've been forgiven. And it's a scandal. It's crazy. You don't deserve to be forgiven, but you have been forgiven. It, this is the gospel that Paul has preached to them. Yes, Jesus really does set people free. He sets them free from the slavery to sin. But he said to the church at Galatia, for freedom, he has set you free. So these quotes that Paul's referencing, all things are lawful for me, all things are lawful for me. Yeah, Paul's point is, yes, but that you're missing the point. In one of Paul's other letters in the, in the book of Romans, Paul, in chapter 5 of Romans, is talking about how crazy good the gospel is, that God forgives you, and it's a stunner, and even though you know, Adam sinned, and Adam's sin fell upon everybody, and you're guilty of sin, in spite of all that, you can be rescued. You can be saved by Christ. He washes you clean. Regeneration, redemption, it's all yours. Then you get to Romans chapter 6. Paul knows exactly what they're thinking. And so at the beginning of chapter 6, you know what he says? So what should we do then? Keep on sinning? Because grace abounds. Jesus forgives me. What, what does it matter? He says, God forbid. God forbid that you would ever process your forgiveness like that. God forbid that you would ever see Jesus' work in a way that causes you to presume upon future forgiveness. That's not what Jesus is doing in your life. He's inviting you into the good life. He's actually revealing to you that his standards aren't arbitrary hoops to jump through, that they're actually for your good, that this way that he has invited you into isn't for, you know, to, to steal your fun. It's actually to reveal to you the good life. Then he moves on to another quote, something the Corinthians apparently were saying, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Why does Paul bring that up? It seems so out of place. Well, he apparently is using it as an analogy about appetite. And the idea is generally this. Whenever you feel hungry, you eat. So if you feel sexual desire, you fulfill it. You feel hunger pains, you fulfill it. You feel sexual desire, you fulfill it. Same idea. If I have an urge, a longing, then I should fulfill it. And Paul says, wrong. That, that, that is not a right equation. Basically, think about this. If you eat every time your stomach wants you to, you'll end up in a bad place, especially in a society that has food everywhere. What's the correlation? If you fulfill your sexual desires every time you have them, then you will end up in a bad place, especially in a society that is saturated with sex. It was in Corinth. It is in Traverse City. One of the things that this also touches on is the separation of the physical and the spiritual. It's a, pro a common problem in the New Testament, and it can be a common problem that we don't even think about in our current culture. As Paul goes on to talk about the stomach and the body, the idea here is the stomach and the body, they're both going to be destroyed, so who cares about that? They're just material things. They're just going to get destroyed. Your body's going to get destroyed. Who cares who you have sex with? It's material. 
it doesn't really matter. Well, here's what Paul says in verses 13 through 18. After he talks about the food for the body. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with the Lord. Flee from sexual immorality. The, 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 the point that Paul's making here, what he wants to bring them or invite them into, is that God cares about your soul, absolutely, and God cares about your body. Because you are joined to the Lord. When God created Adam, he created a body, and then he breathed into Adam the breath of life, and then Adam became a living thing. Body and soul, that's a human being. God cares about both your body and your soul. Your body is not an accident. Your body is not just some tent that's going to be thrown off. It's going to be a body that's going to be transformed, but it's your body, and it's going to be with you forever just in a remade condition. God cares about your soul, and he cares about your body. Some food is good for you. Some food is not good for you. Some sex is good for you. Some sex is not good for you. Who decides? Who decides? Haven't you heard these comments about sex or pornography? Oh, come on. Who's getting hurt? Consenting adults in the privacy of my house. Who's, who's, who's getting hurt? Why, why do you care? Like, you get, get, out, get out of my bedroom. Who decides? Well, Paul's point is this. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, then you have been made new. Your heart has gone from dead to alive, and God invites you into a whole new way of seeing the world, of relating to the world. He says that Jesus' physical body is important, and so our physical body is important. Engaging in sexual activity unites your body with another person. So he says in verse 16, now, there's, there's views of sex that are, that, that are unhelpful. You know, maybe you're familiar with like the Puritan, Victorian view of sex, which was like basically sex is gross. Like, like you got you to do it to have children, but like sex is gross. And some like maybe more conservative circles can even, maybe even unintentionally send the message that, that sex is gross. Well, that's not in line with the Bible. The Bible has a whole book of the Bible on sex, basically. Song of Solomon. Others would say sex is God. Maybe our culture, our current culture would say that. Sex is ultimate. Sex is an idol of the heart. It, it, it's this idea where it's like, if I can't express my sexuality, then I feel, I feel uh, restricted. If I, if I can't declare who I am sexually, then, then how could I ever be fulfilled? Sex is ultimate. Sex is identity. Well, that's not what God says either. What does God say? God says sex is good. Something to be enjoyed, but to be enjoyed in a specific context. That sex is actually supposed to be life-giving. It's, it's a gift from God, but it's in the context of marriage. Sex outside of marriage means that you are becoming one flesh with someone who you're not, your, your life is not one with. And now we're getting to the main point. We're getting to the, the idea that Paul really wants to get after. In the scriptures, 
Idolatry, which throughout this series, we've talked about the idols of the heart often. Idolatry is often equated with adultery. Do you know that? Time and time again throughout the Bible, when, when, when God's people worship something false, God refers to it as adultery, as cheating on God. Why would he say that? Well, look at verses 19 through 20. If you've come to God through Christ, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you, brought, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, God is saying that when you spiritually cheat on him, it's just like when you do something with your body where you physically cheat, where you physically go outside the boundaries. Th think about this. Th the gods of Greece and Rome were fickle gods. They were so fickle to their followers. Their followers did all kinds of things to try to get their gods to approve of them. What, is, what about the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is intensely faithful to his people. And what does the Bible say that marriage is reflecting? God says that marriage is pointing to the faithful love and union of God to his people. That marriage is meant to be a sign to the world of what our God's commitment looks like to his people. And so a husband commits to a wife, and a wife commits to a husband. And as they demonstrate that commitment, they model before the world this beautiful picture of God committing himself to his people. Do you know how all in God is for you? In Genesis chapter 15, we read about something called the Abrahamic Covenant. And we don't have time to give you all the details on the Abrahamic covenant. But basically, it is like the grand promise between God and humanity. And God begins to enter this covenant with Abraham. And the idea is that God has some things that he's going to, some promises he's going to keep. And then humanity has some promises that they're supposed to keep. And they, they, they do this ceremony where they take animals and they cut these animals in half and they lay them in two lines. And the way this covenant ceremony works is that both parties make their promises and then they walk between these animals that have been cut in half. And the idea of the ceremony is if either one of us do not keep our promises, then we should be torn in half. We should be torn apart. Well, as they get ready to do the ceremony, some of you may know this, Abraham falls asleep. A deep sleep comes upon Abraham. And Abraham falls asleep. And then guess what? God walks between the torn animals all by himself. All by himself. What does that mean? It means that God is telling us all the way back in Genesis 15 that he is not only going to keep his side of the deal, he's going to keep our side of the deal. That he'll pay the price if he doesn't keep his promises. He'll also pay the price if we don't keep ours. And if you know anything about humanity, you know that we did not keep our side of the bargain. We failed. And a few centuries later, God in the flesh, Jesus, was indeed torn apart as a payment for our failure to reunite us to God. God is so all in for you that he himself took on human flesh in the person of Jesus and came to this earth to pay the price so that we could actually be reunited with the God that we had rejected. Do you see that God is 100% committed to us? We see it most clearly in the person of Christ. 
in Christ, we completely surrender to him. That, that's the call. When you come to Christ, it's not a 50-50. It's all in. You surrender to Jesus. Uh, Paul actually says in Galatians chapter 2 that I am crucified with Christ. I, I, give, I, I lose my life in order to gain ultimate life. In Christ, we completely surrender. Doesn't that make sense? In marriage, we completely surrender. All of us. Every bit of us, we surrender to our spouse. And so only in the context where we have surrendered all of us does it make sense that we would surrender our physical bodies. Only in that level of commitment, in that level, uh, in, in that level of intensity, does sex make sense. Marriage is two united as one. Paul says, just like in Christ, you are united with God. Our sexual life is to reflect the God of heaven who never quits on us. Sex, the giving of your body, only makes sense in the context of heterosexual marriage where you've given your whole self and then giving your body. Well, that makes all the sense in the world. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is good in the right context. So if your God is a fickle God who doesn't keep his promises, man, then sexual looseness makes all the sense in the world. But if your God is faithful, then sexual faithfulness in God's ordained context of heterosexual marriage makes all the sense in the world. Who, who is your God? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that your commitment to us is so complete that you actually paid for our wrongs, that you actually took upon yourself all the consequences of our rebellion. That commitment, that all-inness, that two becoming one, that union is the most beautiful thing in the history of the world. And then, God, we see this reflected or this, this picture of marriage meant to reflect that, this two becoming one, a man and a woman uniting in this covenant of marriage. God, I am, it's not lost on me that there are many of us in this room that have some, some repenting to do. That many of us in this room have some areas of our life where we have not aligned with this very well. Maybe in our past, maybe in our present. God, would you give us humble hearts? Would you give us a willingness to see that this beauty of the gospel actually frees us to come running to you, to, to admit our wrongs and to, and to receive your incredible forgiveness, to see your way, to see your good way, as we walk through this world, God, would you give us the confidence to trust you that your way is good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.